Welcome to the Nouveau Shamanic Cinema, the podcast where we watch films as if they were dreams or imaginal practice. In this slightly special episode, we're doing a season one wrap-up. So we revisit each of the movies that we've watched so far and pull out some of our favourite insights and favourite parts of the episodes that we recorded. It's been super rich to record this season. We've both really enjoyed it and want to thank you for listening. We're really looking forward to recording the next season and we have some ideas of where we would like to take it. Hope you enjoy this season one wrap-up episode. Hello everyone, welcome back to Nouveau Shamanic Cinema. My name is Joost Revoort. I'm Rosa Lewis. And this is our season one wrap-up. So Rosa and I have been recording Nouveau Shamanic Cinema together. The first episode was, what did we say, two and a half years ago? Mm-hmm. Early 2021. Yeah, which is really interesting. And we've, uh, I think, significantly picked up the frequency at some point recently, especially because we are in the same country now, which has been really amazing. And we are really enjoying making this show together. It's turned out to be a really valuable medium and format for us to engage with lots of stuff. We know that people who listen to it really enjoy it uh, for the same reason and yeah we are planning to keep a steady pace for the show and make some changes to have a new season with a a more structured format for the show and so you can consider this first season our sort of a grand experiment into the viewing of cinema through the lens of the imaginal and the psychedelic and the dream perspective and what we want to do today is to take all the lessons from that first season discuss what we've learned and some key things that we've found together and yeah do a wrap-up and then get us ready for the second season. Yeah, it just sort of emerged as an idea and it just started out as this sort of playful, joyful, explorative thing we were doing for our own enjoyment as much as anything, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like watching as it's emerged, the themes and the ways we describe it and the ways we relate to it and the things like that, it's kind of like coming to its own a bit. So it's nice to just celebrate that, the episodes that have happened so far and then think about the future. Yeah, and so maybe it would be good to start with a sense of what we think the show is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand the, the show that we're doing a lot better than when we started. Uh, so let's talk about it. What do we think that Nevoshimanic cinema is really about and what makes it different from other shows about film? Yeah, as the foundational thing, we're engaging with the film on a different level. Rather than watching it as a film, we're watching it as if it was a dream or an imaginal practice. And I think one of the things that came out right at the end of the last episode that we did was the thing where you were talking about Paprika being an anime film from Japan and that Japanese culture is very animist and that way of engaging with the world with the, the world is alive it's imaginal it's really rich it's always the basis through which meditation buddhism is put on top of and there's a way that i think that that animist way of relating to the world is quite difficult to do in the modern world because it can be super overwhelming or quite disconnected or just have lots of problems it's almost like doing this podcast is a way of relating to experience in that really full spectrum way that includes this animist animist, alive, synchronous, meaningful, rich, soulful, has like a relational quality in it. It includes this Buddhist emptiness of different ways of looking. So it's a modern way of engaging with the world in a way that's innately alive and expressive. And that has a really nice psychedelic, meaningful, spiritual feeling to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the imaginal that we're speaking about here is basically this way of engaging with imagery and meaning in a way where we consider it to be alive and foundational to experience and reality, right? Giving it its proper place or like a much more prominent place or a much deeper place than maybe it would otherwise be given. There's a very embodied component to this as well. So it's sort of embodied imagination, but not taken as just this sort of like, like individual psychological process, but as something that 
structures experience and reality and it's an expression of collective and individual meaning right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think one of the important parts of this is like resonance as well it can become very collective but also there's something where it's hitting on something really personal yeah and i feel like one of the things that was so meaningful about this if i look back on these episodes so you chose all the movies i'd never seen any of the movies before they were all like a fresh watch which is cool i enjoyed that but also there was like a synchronicity quality of like the depth of resonance things from my journey of which there's like no other ways i found to express them than through this podcast where it's almost like finding this sort of like resonance and meaning and depth it really hit on something in me that feels deeply inexpressible and giving it a medium to come out in this more meaningful way there is a scene in upstream color where two characters who have a lot of trouble connecting and communicating with each other because of alien mind problems have managed to do it through the book walden Mm. and it's almost like the podcast is that sort of key right we Mm -hmm. use these films as a sort of imaginal key for deep resonant communication and expression of our realities I think that's it's our Walden and all these movies are little Waldens to us yeah really wonderful yeah and then there was a couple of things I thought was super interesting so I feel like something that came out or that we talked about in a couple of the episodes was the idea of story not being the fundamental unit of meaning and that there's like a level of meaning that comes through on a level of transmission and it's more about the vibe and it's almost like the whole aesthetic the character it's like you're getting some ineffable transmission and I feel like that's hard to talk about in a certain way because it's it's a bit sort of like the water that we're swimming in but what's really nice is when you look at these movies next to each other you can see that each one of them has this whole world that it sort of immerses you in and that it's injecting meaning into your system so i think we talked about this originally with the green knight which has like a certain whole vibe to it but then also when we watched the witch it's almost like being immersed in this whole 17th century christian cosmology including real life witches that are there and the devil and that whole vibe you're transported into this realm into this cosmology into this meaning making system and getting a blast of that whole paradigm and it's nice to see those different paradigms next to each other and what each one affords what each one opens what are the things that are being transmitted and also reflect on the to think that the paradigm you're in is the correct Mm. paradigm like oh we've got figured it out with science now we're now in the correct paradigm yeah it's almost like when you look at all these other paradigms and world that then it can start to kind of unravel your fixedness on what experiences what life is. I love that. And I think that it sort of relates a lot to what imaginal practice does, right? So Rosa is a real champion of especially shared imaginal practice, working with uh, one or two other people, sometimes more people with their internal realities, or, or you could say their imaginal realities and how they're feeling these worlds that they're inhabiting in their bodies and everything like that. And one of the most enjoyable things about imaginal practice as someone facilitating someone's experience is to learn about their realities right Mm. to just be like oh this is just so different like the metaphors are different the imagery is different the feeling body associations are very different and you just get this real sense of someone else's completely different world and i think in a way a good way to understand nouveau shamanic cinema is that we're doing that but with a societal expression right there's just this entire world it's the same effect of opening yourself to a different world but then the way that we do it i think the way that we try to promote it and that we maybe also implicitly and maybe from now on more explicitly encourage our listeners to do it is to really let that be a revelation that enters into your body and into Mm. your energy right rather than oh isn't it interesting to see a depiction of someone else's perspective now we are talking about letting an alien reality enter your system yeah i love that the link with imaginal practice there's a way in which that feels innately related to soul and soulfulness and is very jungian and it's also very related to shadow so there's a way that it's almost like the bits of us that we can't see until we can experience they're sort of like slowly revealing and it's almost like needing something else to reveal ourselves to ourselves so it's almost like using the movie to be in a relationship that then reveals new parts of yourself to yourself or reveals new parts of the world to you or this idea that soul or you could use it's like the ineffable mystery of life and the universe instead of soul if that doesn't resonate but it's kind of like that part of experience is always in revelation rather than like a fixed thing that you can get
get your head around. It's something that's being expressed in the moment. And so you're coming into relationship with the film in a way that it's showing you something about yourself or about the world. Yeah, what's really interesting, I think there is uh, something that came up in the last couple of episodes from the Green Knight on and again came up quite strongly, I think, with Paprika, is the idea of opacity and transparency. And we will talk about a bit more when we talk about these films. But the idea that I think goes for the whole podcast or what we said goes for the whole podcast, which is that transparency is basically the, the notion of going fully into reality. It's like complete suspension of disbelief in your own life. You're just like in it. You're in the experience, you're completely in the pain, in the sadness, in the story, and it's like you're dreaming almost. You're like in the dream, the dream quality of life. And you can do this with a film as well. And the opposite would be opacity, which is to sort of step back from experience and look at its characteristics uh, separate from yourself. So, you know, opacity has a lot to do with mindfulness meditation, for instance, with Vipassana, where you learn to see your experiences as experiences rather than just be in them and just be taken over by them. And I guess what we've talked about is that film critics maybe have a normally like an opacity perspective on the film where they sort of step back and see the film as an object and as a cultural product and how it is made and the camera work and this kind of stuff. So they, they do that opacity move, whereas we do a transparency move and completely go into the film as if it was a dream, if it was a sort of real experience for us. And then we have opacity about our own experience. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's the way you explained it back then. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So originally when we were doing it, we were sort of like sensing into what the theme was, like the theme kind of emerged in, in the same vein. It was like emerging as we were doing it. And I think we originally we're sort of get drawn to certain films and there's a way that cosmic sci-fi horror films were kind of like the thing and i think that's because we were drawn to this dispersed intelligence darkness shadow wholeness interconnection these themes were coming through in like the choices of the films and i think that will come through as we, as we speak about each episode yeah so the, the name of the show nouveau shamanic cinema mm-hmm. comes from Nicholas Cage describing his own acting style and this is uh, maybe you want to explain this a bit more Rosa because you you had a Nicholas Cage connection which sort of made us watch Mandy the first film in the first place right cool yeah so maybe we should start on Mandy Mandy was our first episode and yeah I've, I've always had a super interesting Nicholas Cage it's interesting because I feel like it came full circle and we came back around some of these themes in Paprika which was the last film we did, there's a kind of like intensity in him that I'm really drawn to and felt in myself as well. The YouTube compilation of Nicolas Cage losing his shit is just like amazing. And Mandy is a very, very strong expression of him just like really going full Nicolas Cage. In that episode, we talked about this really kind of like strange and compelling thing between everything seeming really real and really felt. Just like these deep emotions of like deep pain, real absurdity, just like intense, intense, real depth of stuff, which I think was really expressed through that film as well in the pain and the some of the real darkness that came out through the plot between him and his girlfriend and they had a really lovely relationship and she was killed. And then on top of that, this insane stylized sort of like, is it self-aware? <laughs> Kind of like still darkness, but sort of like almost like comedic, almost mystery. like co- like comic book violence. <laughs> yeah, and Nicolas Cage is just an unreal character in the way that he is in the world, and that split between the kind of like real deep, intense realness and this sort of like absurd unreality really resonated with him. So um, the name came from that he described his acting style as nouveau shamanic. He he said that he'd sort of made up a new acting style. He just realised at some point in his career that that's what he'd done. And so that's where the name comes from. And I think that that, yeah, that theme came out in Paprika as well. This sort of split between dream world, real world, how they interact. The fact that if you have the split, you can have more intensity. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's uh, super interesting. And already with Mandy, I think we're seeing a theme that comes back in other films as well, which is this sort of like heart, darkness and realness and love and connectedness as an antidote to dissociated mind madness. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that a lot in, the, in in our conversation, I think, with the cult leader and the whole cult being sort of this dissociated story of being light and this ha- just having this sort of like very closed-hearted evil and the couple with red as the angel of vengeance coming in as this sort of heart connected very grounded knowing what matters couple and sort of counterforce to that dissociated evil 
Yeah, it feels like a theme that came up again and again and again, this narcissistic obsession with light countered by people who have capacity for being real and open-hearted with darkness. Yeah, That's totally. one of the strongest themes, I think. I think so too. Really something interesting coming out uh, in that sense. Yeah, and then we moved on to a very different film, Upstream Color, which is a very muted sci-fi film about a sort of strange distributed ecological form of life and intelligence that has a very strange life cycle with insects and flowers and people. Yeah, it was interesting because it threatened to become a very abstract film. But uh, just like with Mandy, the relationship between two people and the heart that they had with each other, the connection that they had with each other and the love sort of became a counter force to that sort of very abstract alien <laughs> intelligence. And so I, we already mentioned that Walden, the book Walden, at some point, you know, that one of the characters starts sort of writing essentially that book down and the other person figures it out and, and it becomes sort of like a form of communication between them. What is the thing that sort of strikes you now the most when you think of upstream color in the in the context of the whole show? It's interesting. There's something around the this split thing between two things where it's almost like I think in that episode you were talking about the way that this alien mind dispersed intelligence hard to pin down thing was then getting channeled through these sort of very human interactions Mm. and that feels powerful in its portrayal and this came up as a theme again and again and again the the sort of naturalness of everything it's almost like the whole system is expressing something Mm. and I felt like that was a really nice deep theme that can lose its depth when it's said like oh you know it's all Buddha nature or oh it's mm. all the, the, the perfection of the thing and blah, blah 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 but in this it was like looking at the actual of like oh what what does that mean from the perspective of this strange dispersed intelligence that works through lots of people and there's a pig farm and it's and it's really sci-fi versus what's it look like in Annihilation where it's a horror film about that kind of like pulling people apart versus yeah, what does that look like in Suspiria? It's, it's almost like these different worlds where it's almost like what does the idea of everything being Buddha nature or everything being just the universe being a natural expression actually mean and actually look like and what are the darknesses of that and what are the like subtle distortions to the pattern that make it big difference to how it plays out and how humans experience it. And it was just a sort of like very strong introduction to that theme which then resonated through lots of episodes. Yeah, definitely. And with Upstream Color, there was also this attempt to harness that power and use it for manipulation and for societal evil, which then also worked out in very strange ways as well, this distortion of the pattern unfolding. And then we watched Event Horizon, which there was one scene in Event Horizon that sort of became a very strong... Like, it's interesting, right? Because I think all these films have core metaphors or core imagery that's stuck with us so the uxu the cosmic darkness kind of thing was very strong in mandy and in upstream color i think it's the whole network and the whole sort of like alien intelligence as a sort of metaphor Uh, but in event horizon i think the one moment that really stuck with us and that we refer to all the time as a sort of metaphor and as an analogy is there's a moment where the doctor who created the ship the scientist who created the ship dr weir has completely gone crazy in this story and uh, he created the ship that uh, was transported into a, a hell dimension and then came back haunted and being as an alive demonic presence essentially and he was trying to take the whole crew of the rescue operation back into the hell dimension and he kept shouting at the captain captain miller do you see do you see because he was sort of like telepathizing like horror imagery into his brain And then Miller said, yes, I see. And he blew up the part of the ship that let his crew escape. And so that his part of the ship that he was on with Dr. Weir got sucked into the vortex, into the hell dimension. And I think that that for us has been this real metaphor of like, you know, the evil sort of mind, darkness, insanity, cruelty, challenging our sort of like capacity to cope. And then from a heart and a sense of justice and a sense of care and truth and knowing responding to that hell with the right action, no matter how horrible it is, because they were both sucked into the hell dimension. So he wasn't even gonna die. He was gonna basically be in hell forever. Yeah, and we've thought back to that moment many times, right? Yeah, totally. And I think from the other side as well, the sort of flip side of that is we're saying, where we're going, we don't need eyes. Oh yeah. The sort of like not seeing and the seeing and the two being in tension with each other. 
That's the other one, indeed. Yeah, the uh, we don't need ice where we're going kind of thing became a really sort of a verdant theme for us because we then explored a lot together what it means to not engage with the world through the metaphor of sight, to even treat your sight as if it's not actually sight, but just sort of like sensory reception, Mm -hmm. right? So you're in a way not blind, but you are eyeless and your eyes are just the same as your skin. And that was really powerful. And that's not really what we are... I mean, it's kind of what he meant. <laughs> it's not really what he meant. Well, I think it's interesting because this is one of the movies I resonate with the most. I feel like I am that ship. Yeah, right. <laughs> In a certain way. I've been sucked across the urban horizon, into hell, spent a long time there, popped back out. Hopefully I'm not a hell-bringing being, but a goodness-bringing mm. being. But there is a, there's a level of hell that's like integrated. And I think, yeah, this sense of like, I guess we've talked about the black box and the event horizon and the kind of the place where the mind can't make sense of where you are anymore and I think what came out in that episode which I really liked was your definition of emptiness as a kind of pure intuition oh yeah where it's just like your mind is sort of I don't know not involved you can't see Mm. anything anymore you're just sort of like sensing and feeling and yeah resonating um, yeah and it's like in order to get to that place you have to integrate a lot of darkness it feels like the whole sort of idea of an event horizon being it's sort of like a place where time bends and Mm. it's almost like the physics of the things that are happening now that will only be able to be seen in the future and things like that where it's almost like that kind of more just intuitive synchronous world that doesn't make sense to the mind it's just like this movie felt like it was sort of playing on the edges of that in a way that was very compelling to me it still puzzles me how a fairly pulpy horror movie just has this incredible (laughs) imaginal resonance right yeah so this is i mean this is a good reminder for us when we pick films in the future and i think uh, i think we've had other films where it wouldn't be so obvious that it has that kind of resonance and still it does Mm -hmm. it's fascinating yeah yeah Yeah. one last thing to say about that as well is that the deep seriousness and deep playfulness that you talk about i felt like that was part of how Mm. the crew were with each other and like yeah it almost seems like in a way a super trashy film and in another way this like really deeply hitting some really deep notes in terms of kind of reality and what what that is and so yeah it was a good good one for that yeah for sure yeah so then we go to a much more serious film which is uh Anyara Swedish film and we did that episode together with our friend Odile Anyara makes a big impact as well but in a very different way it's a, a, you know this is a film about a, a interplanetary ship that gets knocked off course and and is set onto a sort of death journey into the endless void and there's a whole story around an AI that sort of like simulates experience of earth and then even that AI because it absorbs the trauma of all the passengers and then it kills itself and then it becomes this god that people worship it's dark and it was really interesting to talk about. And I think we, we discussed a lot of sort of themes around hopelessness and sort of being stuck in an endless situation and also with the future being without any hope and just endless coldness and void and darkness. Yeah, it felt like a very strong transmission of the universe as a void. Yes. Because you're just going eternally towards the stars into the universe with nothing ahead of you. Mm. And in this movie, a lot of that was a very negative experience. Mm. So we talked about, you know, the void as a negative experience, but we also explored the possibilities as what would the void be as a positive experience. Part of Dharma is that the void's actually kind of nice and reassuring and can be a sense of resource. So it's almost like trying to look at it from those two different perspectives a bit. Yeah, for sure. And we talked quite a lot about, with some resistance from Odile, I think, uh, about the more positive Mm. version of this this consequence and like how could it be dealt with and like how could you be creative around these things. And uh, and Odile provided a bit of pessimistic counterpart in that conversation, which, which was really great. One thing that I thought was really interesting that I picked up from that episode that I often think about is depressive mind states or very negative mind states. Part of their problem is that they have the power to project into the future and into the past. So when you're really mm-hmm. taken over by depression or anxiety or hopelessness, the past becomes colored by that. The future becomes colored by that. And this is sort of a metaphor for that because a ship that eternally sails into nothingness. And, you know, at some point at the end of the film, we see the ship 5,000 years later or something, and it's just like a a casket. The the pressure of that reality of hopelessness can be countered 
by touching into the immediacy of connection with people right now. Mm-hmm. Like my heart right now cares about these things, right? You could say, in view of the endless void, nothing matters. Why would you do anything? Nihilism, blah, blah, blah. And the counter could be what I feel now matters. The people I, who I care about right now matters. And this is more powerful than any of these sort of projected bleak futures. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, which, which is in a way like an utter, yes, I see yeah. counter. That's great. I also really loved in that episode and in that movie that it was set over a very long period of time and you had these kind of like phases, almost like episodes within the film of like uh, huge phases where everyone was hopeful and then phases where there was a cult and then phases where you've got like a handful of survivors and then phases like far off into the future. And it's almost like this seeing how things roll through, things can just change really radically and there was just something nice about that and uh, if i think about that in in context of what we're talking about now it's almost like thinking back to two and a half years ago when we started this and each of these episodes when we were recording them just thinking about like the states of consciousness we were in the and it's that's an interesting perspective yeah i agree we've gone through lots of stuff in those two and a half years and yet we were here just recording being able to speak with each other at this level about these films and and speak to this yeah, really wonderful film. Maybe one of the lesser known films on our list, but uh, definitely worth watching. Mm-hmm. So then the next one was It. And specifically the first part of the most recent version of It. A very successful uh, Hollywood uh, adaptation. What is interesting in this film is that it's really about the power of fear. right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fear incarnate. Pennywise, the dancing clown, It, the creature, is a extra dimensional incarnation of predatory fear and eats fear and stuff like that i mean one thing to say about about that is that it is in in a way once again that sort of like struggle between a mind darkness of some kind right because it manipulates your imagination and the ways that you look at stuff and see things and you know and what you can imagine in these imagined creatures and then set against the power of sort of connection between people. And there's this concept that we have referred to a lot, mm-hmm. the katet, which is a Stephen King concept of, it's like a sort of sacred bond, a group of people who are connected in a sacred way that makes them able to face extraordinary challenges. Yeah, almost like being bound by fate. Like often these are people who are very singular and very lonely and alone, mm-hmm. you could say, and then being connected through their very specific, strange qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything more you want to say about the sort of like fear part? Yeah, you brought in a really nice insight in that episode of that fear creates the self. Mm. And then it's almost like that's what creates the separation between you and experience or you and the universe. And it felt like that film and that episode, it's almost like the dance between individuation, separation, each of these members of this quartet sort of like coming into their own individual power by having to face their fears and then the sort of like collective group experience allowing them to release their fear and become empowered and feel like strong in the face of challenge yeah for sure and there was a moment in that film that always sticks with me that's not in the books it's not in the other films which is the kids defeat pennywise the first time in the first film and then he he's holding on to this well and his head is busted open by the kids his skin is flaking off and he just says fear and then he falls down mm-hmm. as if he for the first time or it or she i mean it's a she actually for the first time experiences fear mm-hmm. herself and uh, that's a theme right it's mm-hmm. an incarnation of fear another really resonant uh, film and, and story which has a mm-hmm. very archetypical sort of sense to it somehow yeah i think we did a lot of union and analysis in that episode <laughs> yeah definitely yeah so what's the next one so next up we have midsummer mm-hmm yeah, this one was interesting. I think we did this in the middle of a retreat. Yes. A mini retreat we were doing. Yeah. And it was essentially about cults and being coerced into a cult. So it was interesting to see how the collective nature that can overtake people's individuality. I guess we talked about different aspects of that. Yeah, that's right. What was really interesting about the Midsommar, I think, in contrast to some of the other films that we've watched is that I mean, it really hits that theme again of the need for individuation to be there first, for real collective connection to be on the basis of individual expression and personality. And this cult tries to really erase that. And in the way that in in it, the cat that was sort of this collection of very specific people making themselves strong. 
the cult here is the opposite sort of proposition. People who really are gaslit out of their own experience, as you put it very nicely, and just become these communal constructs almost. And that becoming everything and that becoming sort of the terror of the cult and also the way in which it gets to be really amoral and dark mm -hmm. because it's all for the good of the collective and, the, and their weird beliefs. Coming back to that sort of like narcissistic focus on light, one of the things that stood out was the beauty of everything, the literal daylight 24-7 because mm. in midsummer and also like the beauty, the flowers, the, the rituals, everything like that and this really saccharine overheartfulness everything's really kind and we say things softly and we yeah. do these rituals and yeah. aren't we lovely and everything's about goodness and, good yeah. and and how easy it is to then when you've got that on the surface to behave in ways that are really dissonant and really really dark but it's then really hard for the individual to there's so much cognitive dissonance where if you can on the surface portray this level of lightness and talk about light and the behavior of darkness is really hard for the individual to sort of like pull back or resist or kind of get themselves out of that that thing. So I felt like it was a really nice one for, for showing that narcissistic light obsession, spiritual thing that can happen. Yeah, and in a way it's like, what happens if you do shared imaginal practice and it's really mythically resonant and beautiful and engaging, but all individuality gets erased, mm -hmm. right? You, you surrender yourself to the collective primal myth but it's it's very dangerous yeah we then went for a real blockbuster which at the time was already out for a little bit but this is dune again based on a very famous novel arguably the most famous uh, most successful science fiction novel of all time that world is completely full of imaginal resonance one thing that stuck with me when i revisited our episode was the way in which Ecological experience and resonances were so important in this world because it was really a matter of survival. And combined with religious and mythical aspects, there was a real way in which the world of Dune felt more complete than our slightly dissociated, abstracted existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was one thing that definitely came out. Yeah. Totally, yeah. And I think maybe building on that, the Frank Herbert quote, the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. I think the things that we were talking about in June, these things that were more real than a lot of people's perspective on reality, it's kind of like this openness to what experience is, like having a more resonant, energetic, just sort of like what is what is experience and having room for mystery and being more immersed in your direct experience. It's nicely captured in that quote. And I felt like we played with that a bit with, what's the main character's name? Paul. Thinking about how we could relate to his experience differently. So rather than going off into intense projections about the future and getting wrapped up in all of that it's almost like just coming into his present moment and engaging with it in an imaginal way seeing all of these different very political movers and shakers and Benny Gesserit who are scheming and political stuff and get some characters in their immediate present experience and, and sort of go from there and see how that changes the whole dynamic. I thought that was an interesting thought experiment that we did. It's really interesting because when I think one of the funniest, I think, moments and sort of most interesting moments in an episode that we had was when we talked about, uh, you know, so Paul Atreides is the Kwisatz Haderach, he's this Bene Gesserit product that is like a messiah who can see into past and future and, and sort of all these things in different eventualities and different scenarios. And he has this sort of sense of an inevitable destruction of the universe by a weapon that will destroy all organic life forms and things like that. And he's, he's desperately trying to find a way to stop this. And this is not really in a movie, but it's sort of coming. And, but then there's, there's also a sense in which there will be a jihad, as they call it in the film, waged in his name and billions of people will die. And then there's a question of whether that can be avoided and all these kind of things. And we talked about that, you know, he then dedicates the rest of his life to acting on these visions. And we were like, well, what if he would just like feel into his feelings in the moment? Like, what does it mean to feel these things now? Maybe you don't have to do anything. Maybe you could just feel your feelings. And it's interesting because now thinking of opacity and transparency as a model, in a way, he's fully in transparency. He's like, oh, no, I'm having these visions and now I've got to like act. You know, he's like dreaming, right? But you could say that that in a way is quite dangerous mm -hmm. <laughs> to have someone who can actually see future eventualities, just completely buy into them mm -hmm. and not being, being able to step back a bit and look at his own emotional state in the present. Yeah. So I think that that pulled out one of my phrases, which I like, which is if all of life is a shamanic journey, what is it teaching you right now? Yeah, Paul. Yeah. What is it teaching yeah, you? Paul. What is it teaching you right now? 
<laughs> yeah, maybe stop um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and then I thought what was nice is if I thought, when I was relating to that episode, one of the things we talked about and I thought that was clearest in that movie was that the best characters are the most loving ones. Yes. All the Atreides, the Fremen, you're seeing how the heartful people, the heartful warriors, the ones who stand up for them, the people that come from Eros, the people that are like, yeah. care about stuff. They're the best characters. That was, was just very apparent in that movie. It's very connected to The Last Samurai as a theme. So yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, then we went to a very different sci-fi film. We went to Annihilation. This is a movie about a sort of zone that is created by a meteor strike, a meteor impact that brings some kind of alien force with it that scrambles all of information, genetic information, speech, everything becomes sort of mixed. So you get this weird evolutionary pool of mixed things that grow and change and shape and everything like that and get refracted. And that film is almost like a... As a whole, the whole concept is like a metaphor where you can almost feel the refraction coming out of the movie Mm -hmm. into the real world, right? And it really resonated very deeply with both of us, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think one of the things that the refraction does is it showed very clearly the multidimensionality of experience in a way where it felt to me very much about the goddess journey, each character being on their own journey to face their inner battle and come to terms with it and, yeah, release go back into the naturalness or whatever yeah and each one of those journeys was different and it's almost like it showed very clearly that the idea of there being one path of awakening is a bit insane it's Mm. almost like these different people on their different journeys facing their different things coming into their depth with the universe in a different way and that sort of multi-dimensionality being very rich Yeah, and there's a sense in which that wild, refracting cosmic aliveness that's at the heart of that being and that that sort of force is a real great metaphor for the depths of existence beyond what we can understand and what we can grasp and Mm -hmm. sort of that wildness and that plurality. It's a metaphor or, or well, it's an image or it's it's a narrative that uh, you can really feel, I think, annihilation in that sense. Mm -hmm. Really, really powerful like that. So then we made another sort of almost opposite turn once again. Uh, Mm -hmm. We watched The Witch, which is maybe still my favorite horror movie, but maybe was beaten by Suspiria. But I'm not not sure about this yet. But The Witch, it's interesting because that that was tonally, I think, such a different film from everything else that we'd watched before. Mm -hmm. uh, Because it's about this Puritan family goes to live in the woods and they are super hardcore Christians. And it's their whole ideology and their whole reality taken entirely seriously, including the presence of evil as a witch in the woods and as Satan turns up. It has a psychedelic quality that's kind of hidden because the psychedelic quality of the film is essentially the common belief in this really like completely embodied, transparent, you could Mm -hmm. say belief in this sort of universe that they're living in. And, And the real horror of the film isn't really the witch. It's really their own belief structures, I think. Yeah, it's like the fundamental sin, is that what it is called? The original sin. Original yeah. sin, that they're essentially all these sinners and that they need to somehow repent as much as they can and they're never going to break out of the fact that they're sinners. And that being this whole paradigm that is their lives, that their whole entire lives is, is dedicated to and, and lived from. And it's interesting how then the good and the evil then play out against each other what I find really interesting in that imaginal move that they make through that religion is that they um, put all their goodness outside of themselves into God, right? Mm. They create God as, and Jesus as this sort of external force of goodness, and they keep none of the goodness for themselves. Mm-hmm. They are sinners. They externalize as if in an internal family system sort of situation, their sense of the divine. They also give outside evil a lot of power mm-hmm. uh, right so so the satanic is is really powerful and they give them in a way i would say that they really expose themselves to evil influences by having that very strong belief in evil mm-hmm. in themselves yeah they make themselves very corruptible in a way by treating themselves as sinners and then the move of going from the self-denial and self-punishment in the end by the main character the young girl of the family into evil and making a pact with satan as a reaction to all that repression and all that abuse yeah it's a really powerful and imaginally powerful move if you can make that move in yourself i wouldn't recommend becoming maybe maybe an evil witch and start killing Mm -hmm. people but like owning that darkness and making that move yeah totally there's a nice scene where the devil 
that he goes, would like to live deliciously. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think this is another theme that comes through in all of these films, which is the darkness has a certain amount of erotic force and draw to it. Mm. There's something very compelling about it. And when it's split off, that starts to become very problematic. But when you can engage with it, that can actually become a source of aliveness and richness and meaning and soulfulness. And it can become part of your shadow work process, so part of becoming more whole, more rich, more integrity, these things. I think one of the things we sort of talk about with a lot of these episodes is, oh, what's the draw of the darkness in this? What is interesting, uh, because of the religious sort of links with Midsommar in the witch, I think, is that these people were also gaslighting themselves out of their own goodness. Mm. they're externalizing their own goodness which means that there was very little uh, internal trust in their own goodness to mm-hmm. resist the darkness yeah because they had made that move on themselves and i think there's something very attractive about disowning your own goodness yeah. because it speaks to inner critics and inner sort of voices who say that you may be terrible actually and there's a way that darkness has different aspects to it some of which are really evil and others of which are quite interesting and yes. contain a lot of richness i think when you trust your goodness and trust your experience and you can navigate that in a way where you can find a lot of richness without it being harmful yeah for sure and there is something attractive about what they've done which is a sort of humility there was mm-hmm. a, there is a sort of humility and that sort of harsh christianity which is about surrender you know mm-hmm. and i think that surrender and sort of giving away your power it has a genuinely spiritual component, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a sort of devotional quality that's really yeah. beautiful and as well as horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, so then we watched Sunshine together with David. And Sunshine is a film about a team of people who are basically looking to restart the sun because it's about to die out and, and kill humanity with it, I suppose. And uh, Sunshine is really a film about this obsession. I mean, maybe one way to put it would be an obsession with overwhelm mm-hmm. and being overwhelmed and and taking on too much and finding the limits of what you can take on and maybe going beyond those limits and the curiosity of being exposed to greater power than you can handle mm-hmm. right greater force than you can handle yeah for me this became a metaphor i've been really on a mission to really be able to be myself and yeah. this has become such a strong metaphor where i'm like the scenes where they're getting closer to the sun in their ship and they have a viewing deck for the sun they're allowed to put the filters down to like one and a half percent one and a half percent for 30 seconds or something and i've been like as i've been practicing being myself i've been like what if i'm myself for 10 seconds (laughs) and then just like getting smashed by the energetics of it and it became a metaphor for that which was funny and rich yeah, and that's partly because I guess we discussed that move, right? Which we want to mm. do more often in the show. And we've done it before, but like it was really resonant here where, where it's like, what if you're the sun? Mm-hmm. And what if what if this is about your too muchness and sense of muchness and how other people relate to that? And I think what was also interesting was that we talked about people who are, you know, sort of the evil antagonist character who is weirdly sort of reality bending and stuff. A little bit like a Dr. Weir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Event Horizon and Sunshine have a lot of connections. But uh, exposing sort of these people who know something of the truth to like the whole truth mm-hmm. and just blasting them away by that is, was an interesting metaphor as well. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like the people who take aspects of the truth and use it for their power. The way to overcome that is just to go. Filter off. Yeah. Super interesting. Really, again, you know, cosmic resonance with mm-hmm. sunshine. So then we watched... The Green Knight, and it was really interesting because we were a little bit puzzled, I think, by The Green Knight, especially you when you watched it, where we were like, how do we talk about this film? So one of the key themes with this film that we sort of discussed, at least, was that uh, this idea that you've mentioned before about story not being the primary carrier of meaning, a unit of meaning. This film really exemplifies this because it's just this sort of torrent of imagery and moments, right? Yeah, the story doesn't make much sense. It's very episodic. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like moment scene characters moment completely different paradigm yeah here's a strange thing happening yeah yeah i mean the story on a macro level makes sense like mm-hmm. the, the plot finishes and it's and it's logical but mm-hmm. moment to moment yeah it's really all over the place you don't know where you are and yeah, yeah and and you don't really know how these pieces uh, contribute and it doesn't really matter that much it's mm-hmm. meant to be very episodic and and you know the original story is like that as well i mean when i listen back to that episode it's essentially this sort of like real imaginal stream of conversation mm-hmm. about about these things yeah 
Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's nice is that that's how imaginal practice unfolds. Yeah. It's not like you're thinking about a story and letting the story play out. You're just feeling into what's present in a sort of like, oh, there's something in my belly. Like, what is it? Oh, it's an ocean. And I think there's a whale in there. And then you're like, oh, but now we're going into the universe and <laughs> the stars. And like the logic of it doesn't have to make sense of the story. It's more the resonance and the meaning. And that it feels very rooted in imaginal practice in that way. Yeah. Or very easy to relate to it as an imaginal practice. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's it's definitely one of the films, along with Paprika, I suppose, that really hits that imaginal mode very clearly, right? Mm -hmm. those, those two films, I think, share a lot in that sense. Yeah, they're really interesting. And then, so the next one is Suspiria, the 2018 remake of the horror film about a witch cult in a dancing school. <laughs> and yeah, amazing. I mean, I'll tell people about this. They're like, a, a what and a what? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And it's set in the 70s, which is the time that the original film was made. And, and this new film is there as well. A very muted, very dark, somber, story-rich remake where Tilda Swinton plays almost everyone. <laughs> and, and this is a very profoundly dark movie, right? Mm -hmm. And so in, whereas in most of our films so far, there has been a sort of like heartful counterforce mm -hmm. of some kind, as you will often have in movies. Here, yeah, not so much. <laughs> you know, we had a, we had a sad, melancholy uh, psychiatrist who was sort of an observer and he was maybe the heart of the movie in some ways, but everyone else was just evil as fuck. Yeah. So you, uh, I remember that you and I had quite different responses to mm -hmm. this, uh, a, a repulsion and attraction to put it sort of like simply, I mean, I think that dinner scene yeah, it's it's interesting. It feels similar to the things we've been talking about, about Midsommar, where you have, it's almost like the faux heartfulness, the beauty on the surface. We're mm. doing this, mm. la la la, la la la, we're at dinner, we're having a nice time, we're laughing, we're connecting. And then underneath, it was done really nicely in this movie, the women who had the power, the sort of older women who were teachers at the dance school, were then having a telepathic conversation that was much darker and much more, had all the power dynamics in it and their like true intentions behind it. And it was almost like this really amazing depiction of sort of toxic femininity where you have this sort of like niceness on the surface and then underneath there's like these subtle messages of power dynamics and like getting at each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's inter it's interesting because uh, that I hadn't really thought about the link with Midsommar before. In a way, this is almost like a darker version of Midsommar, but in a way also less creepy because at least these women have agency. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in Midsommar, it's just this sort of universal, uniform cult. And, you know, all these people have personalities, but it seems like they're really subservient to the mm -hmm. sort of hive mind of the cult. And in Suspiria, the collective that they have there is a vehicle for individual ambitions. Right. It's right? more of a power struggle yeah. coming out. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, there's an interesting parallel between Susie and the main character in uh, Midsommar, played by Florence Pugh, uh, mm -hmm. who both end up sort of at the heart of these cults. Mm -hmm. But the one is basically like a primordial devil. <laughs> the other one is just a victim who's gone insane in a, in a pile of flowers. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so, so they very different, very different positions. Yeah. It's almost like, do you feel like you're like sort of Midsummer in a pile of flowers or do you feel like you're Mother Suspiriorum today? <laughs> yeah, this, nice. this film, I have to say before we move on, but Suspiria has profoundly touched me. I, mm. I am not sure if I think it's better than The Witch now and my favorite horror movie of all time. It might well be, but there's something about the attractiveness of that sort of void-like abyssal feminine power yeah. that has made me think about a lot of things in my life. Yeah, I liked a lot of the concept you were bringing in of the naturalness yes. of Mother yeah. Suspiriorum because I liked the fact that that really feels like in a certain way a true depiction of the wholeness of naturalness mm. where it does also include this really dark, really evil force that's clearly a huge aspect of the universe we live in yes. is, is super dark and that's part of the wildness and the naturalness. It's almost like I don't like it, but it is true and it does have this like really imaginal resonance depth to it. Yeah, it, it took us a while to sort of like work out what we were getting at with that. It was a really interesting sort of excavation, I mm -hmm. think, in that episode. And in a way, Modus Suspiriorum, you know, has some relationships to the sun and sunshine and to the uh, entity being thing in Upstream Color. 
Yeah. Right. And to the Hell Realm, I guess, in Event Horizon and to Pennywise, like to and all these forces. The Mandobob in Annihilation. The Mandobob. Yeah, they're all, Yeah, you can make a like Avengers team of primordial forces of destruction. <laughs> and it would all be interesting yeah, versions of each other. That was Suspiria. I highly recommend it if you like really messed up films that feel <laughs> that feel really real in their messed upness right yeah. they are speaking about some real evil even if the evil is supernatural in uh, i mean it's even funny because the doctor says this right another tilda swinton character but says uh, basically like some people do criminal acts and they call it magic or they call it the occult but mm-hmm. they're just doing criminal stuff or, mm-hmm. or evil stuff that's what he said and i guess in a way that's basically what what is happening in a film We've got two more. Yeah, big sigh coming out of this this cesspool of of, uh, of uh, torment that is uh, Suspiria, and now we get to exhale and talk about the Last Samurai. Beautiful. Yeah. I think I'd like two more movies like this. I mean, <laughs> we've really done a lot of cosmic horror, which I love, but doing this was such a joy. Yes. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we watched that late at night. It was yeah. kind of a bit of a relaxing. We had a bit of a retreat here again. And we yeah. were like, okay, let's watch something that's really like, feels like an, a cosmic exhale and sort of a celebration of cosmic beauty. Yeah. I think we talked about how it has a little bit of cheesy, yeah. unrealistic thing, but almost like as an archetypal expression of some really deep values. It was just beautiful. Really sure. nice way to look at awakening. Really beautiful, poetic, strong, good masculine energies just lots of nice yeah stuff. i mean totally there is some sort of like slightly problematic uh worshipping of violence and historical unreality and stuff but we discuss all these caveats yeah and then if you can sort of like let that be and just look at you know just use the movie like we do in this show as an imaginal practice it's a profoundly powerful open-hearted warriorship or what being a warrior poem we talked a lot about that we it was a real reason for us to talk quite deeply about awakening in really sort of grounded ways uh, it was really incredible yeah i think something about the unreality it almost feels like it's interesting to do those back-to-back suspiria and and the last samurai because it's almost like in suspiria the story is like a metaphorical representation of some real dark feminine energies yeah and this felt like a metaphorical representation of some real light and whole and good masculine qualities in the world yeah, which is really nice because I think I'm profoundly sick, especially this happens a lot in older movies, but I guess still, of films that just represent dark. Like, it's so easy to make a movie about horrible men. And my problem, I mean, it's great. And lots of these movies are great and men can be horrible, obviously often are horrible and stuff like that. But like, it's also a bit like worn out because I think the meta communication that often happens with these movies is... Unfortunately, men are just like that. Mm-hmm. That's just what they're like. Men yeah. are just going to be men are going to be men. And it's a bit in that sort of noir film kind of thing. I mean, yeah, sure, possibly. But the, there are other possibilities for masculinity. And uh, The Last Samurai just gives a, a different perspective. Yeah, like the full range of emotionality and poetics and strength and power and all of those things. And I think the same with feminine energies. It's like so easy in this modern day and age to say, oh, we need to focus on the positive of the feminine and the negative of the math you know it's so easy to get stuck in those fixed power dynamics but actually there's something in wholeness and this is in Jung's work as well with the anima and the animus it's like Mm. important to include the full force of the feminine is that it has dark and light it has the potential for good and for evil and obviously the same with the masculine and so it's kind of like really giving space to both of those in their fullness felt really nice thing to do yeah, definitely. And a real a real sort of like constricted breathing in and then mm-hmm. relaxing breathing yeah, out, yeah. watching these things uh, so close together. And then finally, Paprika, which is a nice way to end the season because that is really a flagship film for imaginal journeying, I would say, right? It's imaginal practice in a film, basically. Yeah, yeah. totally. So there's a, a device, the DC Mini, that allows people to perform therapy in other people's dreams and then essentially everyone in the world starts living slash dreaming together in this one dream reality mix mismatch slightly crazy realm and the people who invented the dc mini are trying to sort of fix the mess 
And this is, uh, of course, a really great opportunity and depiction of the imaginal, the dream world, dream reality, mixing with reality, the sort of the meaning of imagery. And there is at the heart of the film, at the heart of the dream, I guess, in the film is this completely batshit parade. And I remember us talking about how this is very archetypical, like you could almost say it's the capital P parade. It's the parade of craziness that sort of parades through the dream world. But just lots of powerful images like that and spaces to reflect on, yeah. An interesting thing that we talked around there, that being an expression of unboundaried creativity. And there's a way that sort of depicted a certain type of unraveling. Yeah, a a kind of unravelling of what reality is. And I think this is a a theme that came in in a lot of movies and is perhaps most crisply portrayed in Annihilation, which is your sort of like unravelling, refracting, realities kind of taking different shapes. Yeah. And it's very unboundaried. It's almost like the boundaries are dissolving and then what reality is is becoming something else. And then in the ways that this is portrayed, and it's also in, this happens in Event Horizon and some of the others, It's almost like as reality unravels, what are the threads that keep it boundaried and cohesive? It's almost like, is it people's personal stories? Like it was in Upstream Colour. You know, is it form? Is it, yeah, what are the things? And I think that people's personal stories is often the threads that keep it together. Yeah, people's personal stories people's connections to each other but mm-hmm. not only right it's like a sort of like individual individuality and connectedness together being a sort of bulwark against abstract alien colonization of of weird worlds and other people's evil intent i almost feel like if you think about all the films we watch together you could almost write a sort of like how to live wisely based on the first season of Shamanic cinema yeah, you know which which would contain things like give yourself and other people space for you know your own reality support people's own realities but connect with them and, and make these sort of like strong heart connections uh, trust the wisdom of your own heart trust your own capacity to love and for your heart to see clearly about what must be done and what's important integrate your darkness you know, uh, give space for darkness. All these different things are like lessons that are coming out of the show. Find a balance between opacity and transparency. Yes, yes. So so develop your capacity not to be just halfway stuck between opacity and transparency where you're neither really in the experience nor really seeing it from the outside, but, but being able to move into, into experience, immerse yourself in these different realities, fully feel and embody the uh, imaginal truths that they, that they represent. And then also step back and you know being able to step back and being able to look at your experience and sort of like see what it is uh, mm-hmm. with a bit of remove yeah and being able to analyze it yeah, yeah. nice and then i think I, that's, that's almost like a meta perspective which is like looking at these different movies these different paradigms these different threads these different stories these different ways of relating to experiences just like a question of who gets to decide what reality is yeah and just kind of like reflecting on that and giving yourself some space to feel in. And I think like you were saying at the start, almost like let these realities in to your experience and see what happens. Yeah, that's interesting because the films are, this is also a theme that runs through all the films, right? Who gets to decide what reality is? And a lot of the evil in the films or the darkness or the danger in the films comes from forces trying to shape the reality of others. Yeah. And, and coerce them and going against their will in that. Yeah, really wonderful. It has been a real joy to do this season together. Yeah, for the next season, we have a sense of what we're doing with this show after having experimented now. So we want to sort of like solidify structure and develop a methodology around what does it mean to engage with films in this imaginal psychedelic way. So the next season will be more structured. What we are planning to do is to seek some more explicit connections with our audience. And one thing that has allowed us to do more episode has been editing by a third party. So that costs a little bit of money. So we're planning to to set up a little Patreon to get some people, hopefully to support us a bit enough to be able to afford the editing because that means that we can just do more episodes. And on the other side, we want to create this more structured show. Rosa, do you want to tell our listeners how we are planning to create this more structured version of the show? Yeah, I think we want to keep some of the core things, so a kind of synopsis and 
choosing some of the most resonant moments or quotes or things that were like really alive for each of us and sharing how that landed in our imaginal realms. And then, yeah, I really liked in the episode, you sometimes ask the question, what do you imagine it's like being X? X being like the sun in sunshine. Or, or the green knight. Or... Yeah, the green knight or the creepy doll in paprika. It's almost like some part of the movie that's not an obvious choice. Like or perspective, your, yeah. Putting yourself in the perspective of that. That just seemed like a cool mind-bending, imaginal exercise to do. Yeah. And then, just as we were talking now, this is a new one, but I wondered about... We sort of naturally do this anyway, but it's almost like, what's the lesson to be learned? What's the like wisdom to be cultivated from this movie, I think is a nice thing to explicitly bring out. Definitely. And then, yeah, another one was, was thinking about almost like giving, in the way that we often give each other little imaginal exercises to do as we talk about it, giving you the listeners an imaginal exercise to do with each film. So, for example, in Paprika, where there was the main character was split between a dream version of her and a waking version of her, explicitly setting the idea of what does the dream version of you look like and kind of giving you, you something to feel into in your experience. Yeah, so an overview of the film, a few standout moments, the kind of moments like the yes, I see, you know, kind of moments, then this sort of like dream perspective taking, a life lesson and an exercise. And that, that's the structure of the show, which we think still leaves another space for the kind of emergent wisdom that we are finding with these films, but gives a bit more structure and a bit more method that you can apply to your own film watching as well. And then we are uh, most likely going to be doing now and again a response episode where we collect your own reflections, your own imaginal practice reflections, some of the coolest ones, and we will uh, read them and talk about them every so often you know when we have watched a few films again we're keeping that separate so that it can all be neatly organized and uh, you can maybe respond to our some of our assignments in that way yeah so uh, watch our social media for updates about what the second season will look like uh, we'll, we'll likely start with that soon and we'll uh, we'll let you know about uh, sort of ways to support us uh, get get the show going and, and make it more more frequent yeah and um thanks to everyone who's listened so far it's been an absolute pleasure to make it yeah definitely it's been it's been really amazing it's yeah. it's incredible it's one of my most favorite things in the world actually to do yeah. this show together so me too so stay tuned bye bye thank you to everyone who's listened to season one we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and we look forward to seeing you next season at the Nouveau Shamanic Cinema bye